Hey everyone, welcome to the Disco Posse Podcast. My name is Eric Wright, I'm going to be your host. Today's show is brought to you by our good friends over at Veeam Software. So everything you need for your green-themed data protection needs, this is the place to be. Uh, Veeam Software has been around for a long time. They've got a ton of great platforms around helping you to protect your enterprise data, whether it's in the cloud, on-premises, SaaS situations, and in fact, they actually just bought a brand new uh, company and brought them in, and now they're able to back up your Kubernetes and cloud-native infrastructure. So that's wicked cool. So make sure you want to check out more. You go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse, and they'll take you right to the link that lets them know, number one, that you came from old Disco, and secondly, they're just also wicked cool friends. So uh, please do check it out. So go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. The show is also brought to you by Velocity Closing. If you're at all involved with technical sales or anywhere in the vendor space, you need to make sure that your technical sellers know how to reach and connect and engage with their audience in a better way. As a consumer of many, many sales calls over the course of my career, I've learned a lot of the hard ways and where people are unable to connect. So I created a platform called Velocity Closing. We've got a beautiful ebook. It's called The Four-Step Guide to Delivering Extraordinary Software Demos That Win Deals. And you can download it today. So go to velocityclosing.com. If you actually go right now, you're going to get not only the book, you're going to get access to the upcoming audiobook and the online course. So check it out. Go to velocityclosing.com. Let's get to the show. All right, we've got Martha Weidman on. Martha's an amazing person who's the founder of Nine Dot Arts. We go through, first of all, the, the experiential capabilities of art and, and physical art in how it can affect your psyche, your world, and a lot of stuff around you. But then we dive into an incredible startup founder story that will blow your mind. So many great lessons. This is business school in a podcast. Check it out, Martha Weidman from Nine Dot Arts. Hey everyone, I'm Martha Weidman with Nine Dot Arts, CEO and co-founder of our art consulting and curating company, and you are listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. And uh, with that, we're on. Now, this is the, uh, it's been a, a thing that's been in waiting. I'm excited to actually finally put this together. Uh, Martha Weidman, you and I did what I find is one of the most amazing things that we can do is that when we meet before the podcast, we have a conversation that I would have put out as a podcast. And <laughs> because it's, you've got such a, a fantastic way of telling, you know, your story and just you're, you're doing some neat things and you are a, are, are a fantastic person. And, and I'm going to share you with my world right now, if that's cool. So Martha, if you want to introduce yourself and we're going to start talking about nine dot arts, some of the cool stuff that you're doing there. And uh, we have a lot to cover, which is going to be fun. So hold on tight folks. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks. I'm happy to be here today. And, uh, you know, like you said, we had a fun conversation kicking this off and I'm excited to meet with your audience and share our story with your listeners. Nine Dot Arts is an art consulting and curating company. We're based 
in Denver, Colorado, but we work all over the United States. We worked in four different countries, uh, have yet to do a project in Canada, but hope to make it your way in Toronto sometime soon. Looks like an amazing place to visit. Nice. And I tell you, we all, uh, we all need some, some art in our life right now. Uh, what, and what enticed me about your story and, and, and what you're doing and why I, I'm very strong on the, the potential and the power of it is that we as humans are very visually you know, bound to things. And whether we, but the funny thing is that a lot of people don't realize it. And I'm a longtime student of behavioral psychology. And what got me into software and technology was an understanding of people. Mm. I'm, I'm relatively, I, I, I'm a decently smart gentleman. I know a little bit about code. I know a little bit about tech. But what I really know is what makes people care about using it. Mm. And oh, I, yeah. this is, I, the, this is the, the thing. So you are in the, you are in the life and the business of making people see things that maybe they didn't even realize was right there with them. Well, I wish I could make people do things. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we can just provide the medium and then, you know, people take it how they want. Uh, but, you know, Eric, I love the way that you put that. And I like how you're describing your background in behavioral psychology there, because one of the things that we take for granted at times is how our environment shapes us. And the things that you surround yourself with and the things that you see help shape the, your perspective on the world. And they also help to tell your story. And one of the things that we've built our business on is the fact that art experiences are a way to share your brand narrative as a company. They're a way to create an experience of a place that supports the local community, that supports the local creative economy, and really builds an environment that brings people joy, hope, inspiration, whatever the goals are for that particular location. So while we have this whole world of artists and creation and you know, visioning that happens in a digital space, maybe what's different from what we do is that we actually manifest those works into the physical world. So we're bringing art installations, um, sometimes on a massive scale to developments or cities or buildings or office spaces. And that's a really fun part of our job because it makes all of those concepts become real. And I think at a time in a recession, you know, at times when the economy is slowing down, sometimes people want to, you know, maybe think about other things first, right? And yes, there are some very essential parts um, of business happening right now that need to continue. But I'd like to argue that creativity is an essential business. Having creativity gives us the tools that we need to be inspired. It gives us hope. And it's one of the things that I think will be the best tools to bring us out of this current struggle that we're in as, a, as an entire global community. Art and creativity will help us visualize the future of what things look like and how we can get there. I, uh, I like where you're going. Uh, the, the neat thing even beyond this is it transcends 
so much, right? So visually creative things transcend language. They transcend cultures. We have, we have the ability to appreciate something that's not born of our culture, our group, our community, our language, but then it because we can appreciate it and if, draw something from it, whether we even, again, like know it or not, it's a, a, an amazing amount of it is truly subconscious. But by being able to do that, you can now that we can also educate on where it came from, it entices people to say like, oh, I really like this. You know, I wonder where this, you know, I'd like to see other things by this artist or in this style. And then they can find themselves kind of in this curious new search for something, which is going to take them to a place that they may not have realized they even wanted to go before. Yes. You know, that's, art is really a universal language and it tells the story of humanity at different moments that we go through together. And even right now, you know, I think about the artists I follow and watch. Uh, I love watching Mathoni, the drummer queen, and seeing her music coming out of Nairobi. Uh, I love we have a couple of British artists that we worked with, with Stuart Semple and the Happy City Project. They came to Denver and, you know, got to see one of our installations and be inspired by that. They're doing some really amazing work in Bournemouth in the UK, but it's really a global, it's a global connection. And so I, I love that art can transcend so many uh, different worlds that we all come from, right? It really unites us. It's, a, it's the old classic goes, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I love that feeling that people can come to it and feel like you don't have to be an expert. You just have to know what you like, you know, know what brings you joy when you see something and that inspires you. That's what you like. And so I think there's really um, a lot of space in this world to, to take down the judgment on, you know, what people's personal opinions are and rather say, tell I'm curious I'm curious about what in that artwork what in that experience what in that place inspires you and how do we learn more about that I think approaching art as something that everyone can understand is the the way to view the world in the what I view your and I'll, I'm going to put my, I'm going to anthropomorphize my, my idea on, on, on what you're doing and is this idea that you're creating an experience. It may yeah. be in your lens and you've, you obviously have your own interpretation of any experience by how you design things, but you are effectively creating an experience for somebody. And just like anything with user experience, another sort of uh, often used quote is that, User, no one knows when user experience is done very well, but they very much understand when it isn't. That's absolutely right. When you're, you know, seeing a great art experience and you have, when you have uh, an experience of being in a place where the art, the design, the architecture is all spot on, you walk inside and you just kind of feel, wow, this is cool. I like it here. Yeah. And you don't really know why it just all works. And it's usually because of a really thoughtful planned UI that's going back to understanding the brand narrative during the time when the designs are being developed. You know, what you might not notice is that there's a particular 
type of lighting in the ceiling that's shining specifically on that artwork. There's a built-in niche that's done architecturally to support this vignette that you're seeing and creates a feeling of a small space or maybe a little quiet kind of introverted zone that feels safe where you can go and feel comforted. Um, and then you might see a large scale landmark outside, you know, a really massive scale mural or installation that helps you say, oh yeah, meet me, meet me over at the milk splash, meet me over at the blue horse or yeah. whatever the image is. And so you're using art as a wayfinding tool, but it's all kind of happening in the background, right? As a, as part of that audience experience. And as you call it, the user experience coming through, it's not something you necessarily see all the detail on, you just feel it, right? You feel it and experience it in a way that's just easy and natural. What I really want people to, to dig into and understand as we talk through this stuff, what's really interesting too is talk about transcending, that all the context that I can give on anything that I ask here is, is pure, can be purely done in the heart of using software. And that's sort of a big focus of folk, a lot of folks that are listening is that they they kind of come generally uh, sort of from a technology background and, and a business background. So everything about that in, in just a pure visual art format, it's that you just need the little trend, the decoder ring, you know, to, to show the, but it's the same fundamental concepts because it's not just the, the visual art as a, as a medium in and of itself which is a fantastic thing if you could dig in. I could literally spend hours just talking with you about that side. But what it is, it's here, right? It's, it's the, and I, sorry, I, I'm visually pointing it at my head, right? Because I'm, 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 why wouldn't you do that on a podcast, right? <laughs> but I can see you. <laughs> it, is, it is the heart of behavioral psychology, which is why we do all of these things that we do in behavioral economics and, 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 and user experience design and software and, and, and in physical experiences. These things are truly, you can take them from one industry and move them to another, and it has a place. Yeah, I think cross-disciplinary inspiration is really important because a lot of times in business, we get stuck in our own silos, you know, and, it, and that can be a very echoey experience. What, you know, there are a lot of commonalities across business, things like appealing to your audience, right? Making a great experience for the people who are engaging with your work and uh, understanding, you know, at a, at a base premise, how to bring value to the world. And those things really transcend different types of industries. You know, I, I think for your tech following to just kind of give some context on 9.arts, you know, we started uh, really back in, gosh, 2007, we worked for an art consulting company and, you know, you'll probably all just, uh, you know, uh, roll your eyes when you hear about this. But we had slide carousels of images of artwork. And as my partner, Molly Casey, and I, when we co-founded the business, we were just looking for ways that we could bring efficiency to this, you know, decades, uh, decades old process that we knew really well. And so we just started digitizing everything that was happening. 
And art, as some other industries, was one of the last ones to really embrace digital technology. And it's still, it's still on its way. It's still transitioning to this day. Um, but taking some of those kind of old school methodologies and old school processes and understanding some of the basics, like knowing your audience and building a service and a platform that was going to bring value, really helped to guide us and how we were using technology to enhance the work that we do. Well, the, the thing, you, it's interesting that you talked about like the, and we talk about like economy of motion in certain things like efficiencies and in, in, in music, it becomes a very important thing about really taking to that next level of, of, you know, with a guitar playing, drum playing, there, there's, once you get very good at the fundamentals, then what you do is you say, okay, let's tighten this up and let's look for how can I like make efficiencies within what I'm doing. And it was neat that you brought that up, this idea of, you know, visual efficiencies. I'd love to get your thought on that. Like what is the economy of visualization when you look at a room or look at a, an office experience or an installation and like how much of that plays into you kind of walking through and understanding this, is there an economy of visual experience? Oh, Eric, well, I, I like where you're going with this. I'm not sure if you're headed this direction, but I'm going to take it there and you can tell me <laughs> if you have questions about it. So, you know, in our business, we're typically associated with projects that have not been built yet. So even the, the building itself or the neighborhood, we, we might be involved on, you know, a 200 acre master plan development for a neighborhood that doesn't exist yet. Right. And so we're talking about how can we bring an art experience to this place that's going to make a difference. Or we're looking at a development on a city block or even within just a single office. Right. So how is this office going to feel when you walk in the door and it doesn't exist yet. And there's this moment where you take two-dimensional drawings, a brand narrative, and a number of abstract concepts, and you need people on your team that can actually see it. And what's, what's been really cool is to watch how things have shifted and transitioned uh, in the world of art and the world of construction and how we're able to actually create visual experiences that people might not have had before. So, you know, historically, we'd be looking at sketches, you know, watercolor sketches and renderings, pencil drawings. We'd be looking at uh, two-dimensional floor plans, blueprints, and then having to just describe with our words how you would move through this space and how it might feel to help convey those things to the client. And right now, you we have so many tools available uh, by creating uh, augmented reality experiences or virtual reality experiences. So now you can actually construct a building and walk through it in a digital way, in a digital environment, and we can add the artwork into that constructed environment. And so art that maybe hasn't even been created yet, right? We're, we're going to commission a sculpture that's going to sit in the stairwell. And when we were looking to finalize this sculpture, so there's, this is a, I'll give you a real world example. We were working with the CSU Spur campus for the National Western Center. 
and it's a multi-building campus that's going to be built out over the next five years. We put out a call for artists. We got our finalist, Sandra Fettingus, and as we're going through the vetting process, we took her, her sculpture design, placed it into the architect's renderings with Anderson Mason Dale, who had created those architectural uh, fly-throughs. And then you could actually walk into the building with your goggles on, see the artwork hanging in the stairwell. We were able to modify size, adjust placement, and not only adjust placement in size and scale to understand what you could see from the exterior, you can share that with the client and share it with the construction team so you can see through the walls. And you could see we were going to, we had a couple of attachment points that ran you know, right next to a water line, but now you can look through the wall and actually move your attachment points. So it's just a, a really cool way of syncing up uh, construction, client experience, and, and helping people who have difficulty imagining what things look like from two-dimensional to three-dimensional or, you know, just really the experience of walking through and provide that in a way that feels really quite real. Um, and helps people, you know, bridge the gap there. So that's been a, a very cool thing to see uh, expand and advance over the years. It's quite an amazing ability to use technology to do that as a as a function of the the path to the end result. And I, what I've always thought about, and I'm curious on your ideas, uh, what are the what are the dangers? or the risks kind of in the belief that augmented reality is in fact the end experience. I personally don't believe, like I think that that's a great, like I said, I truly treat it as a pathway to what should be a, a real continuous permanent, you know, experience. I love augmented reality, but I, it's also not, we, go, we can't walk around in goggles and we can't walk around holding our phones up walking around. We can in small spaces, but at large, we still, I believe, need to be just like in that sort of fundamentals of physical medium. So have you found that the digitization of a visual experience may, you know, make it harder for you to impart the value of that true physical environment? Well, it's a good question. The first thing that came to my mind as you were just asking that question is that Motown song, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, Baby. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe yeah. you can like play that in the background while we're doing this, but it's true. It's so true. So while, you know, we're, we're doing so much of our work online now, like I said, it used to be all slide carousels and, you know, we would bring our clients and we would fly them in you know, they might fly from five, 6,000 miles away to come in and actually see artwork in the flesh before it was then purchased and shipped to their location and installed. Now, all of our presentations are happening digitally. Approvals are happening digitally. I mean, the world just shifted. Now with COVID, no longer do we have any physical presentations anymore. Everything is happening digitally. So the challenge with that is seeing things on the screen is not the same as seeing them in the flesh. Um, sometimes understanding scale or quality of work can be lost, like quality of the physical object, quality of the execution of the physical object. Um, luckily, you know, that's what we know. That's where our expertise comes to the table because we have 
you know, a staff that's experienced in recognizing talent and recognizing a well-done execution. Now, the thing that is, for me, the most fun about the experience of clients selecting most of their work digitally at this point is going through to the installation. Because the, the engagement that happens at installation just then becomes next level. Because at that point, maybe no one has really seen this. No, no one on the client side or the audience side has seen this artwork before. You know, we take for granted at Nine Dot that we get to be in this environment every day and see the real thing in the flesh. And then when all that work goes into the real world and into real life, you just get this next level appreciation because it is a human connection. When you see a painting or a drawing that someone's made by hand and you can recognize the detail and the soul and the heart that went into creating that and the talent of that execution, it really, I think, raises your level of appreciation. And then you take that and you learn that that artist actually lives five blocks away and that this place is supporting the local creative economy for people who have that sort of skill and talent to make their work and bring it to the world. Now you're just really getting a, a depth and a richness that you know you you can't always get in an augmented reality experience so i truly believe there's nothing like the real thing in there's an interesting uh, balance i'm curious you know how do when somebody's like like an office space uh, or or a campus space where is the balance between where the 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 subject becomes like you said, the artist that may be local versus like, there's obviously got to be both, but I, I'm, is there ever a thing where one becomes like, they say, look, I want only local artists to be involved in creating this. And I want to be very prominent that they are like, we have placards, we have something that, that signifies where it's from versus other who may just be like, I want this to be like a room that just got painted so that when you walk in, you don't know that it was a different color 10 minutes ago and it looks like it just is done. Like it, there's this thing of like, I just want to be complete and visually strong, but versus the, I really want to focus on this is the centerpiece or part of the, the strength of the experience instead of just sort of making it look like it fits in. <laughs> well, it's a good question. And we work, we really work to, achieve both. So you're going to have the visual strength, that experiential strength where you walk in and you just feel that you feel the story of that place because it's so well put together. So you're going to have that piece, this visually appealing experience as number one, and then the level of learning about who made it, where they came from and why that's important. That's going to be your next levels two, three, four, you know, that you can market, promote, engage over time. And what's, you know, the goal of that and what's important there is to reward curiosity. So when you have someone who's coming in to experience this space, you know, your, your general viewer may not ask any questions, but then, you know, maybe three and five want to know more. And then those three are going to get some other detailed information. And then of those, maybe 
two and a half want to actually come back and see the artist creating a, a work or maybe you know two and a half want a copy of the brochure and then they're going to actually bring their friends back and they want to show them this little tour because they learned something new they're going to go oh my gosh do you even know so the ones who commit the time the ones who commit to being curious and those who want to learn more are going to get these great little nuggets so we just like to sprinkle you know little easter eggs around there and then the curious visitor is always rewarded from that experience. So this is where it's funny because you've actually just gone into the next level of fantastic user experience and software design, which is what we call the call to action, right? Ultimately- I didn't even know we were doing that. Look at that. <laughs> so what you've, what you've just talked about is the idea that not only do we create a place that just lets people feel welcomed and want to explore more, but in, ultimately especially in software and, and website experience and business experience we want to lead them towards taking another active step and we call it the cta the call to action it's usually the button that says sign me up for a webinar or or, mm -hmm. or buy now or or find out more get on my newsletter so in a way that you're you're literally physically doing this call to action experience because you want to incent people to be excited enough to go further. Mm -hmm, exactly. And you know, I think this comes back to one of the earlier points you were saying that there are so many cross cross collaborations between different types of industries. We all know what these basic principles are and it does come back to human behavior. It comes back to how people want to interact with the world and they want something that's responsive, right? Uh, they want something that's entertaining and something that's that's fun and helps you feel connected to another human. And I think that's really what it's all about is how we're creating these connections. It ultimately, yeah, we, it, we have to always remember it's rooted in that goal of, you know, whether it's, you know, highlighting the value of the community where, where, the, where the art comes from, where the artists are from, and, and just creating a, a community of belonging, like visual belonging. Yeah. so that you just feel comfortable and yeah. especially in like you said in this time where and and there's another one I'm, I'm how much of your installations uh i'll say used to because i kind of have to say that be about a tactile experience because i know sometimes there is a, a physically interactive sort of part of the way that art fits into a, an experience Mm hmm. Well, there really is an important, an important consideration of appealing to different senses. So, you know, we might be focused on a visual, a visual manifestation, but that has multiple forms as well. I mean, you can see for that, for example, the artwork that's in, in my office right now that you can see around me, there's a photograph, that's on paper. There's an artwork that's on steel, uh, that's a painting on steel. And then there's a sculptural wood carving installation. And then another uh, textural kind of styled uh, sculpture that's made with feathers. So you want different types of textural visual experiences. And historically, you know, you might have those things uh, where people could actually touch them, right? Like physically and tactilely 
experience those works, but now you have to, a lot of the works that are going out have plexiglass bonnets on top, which is basically just a barrier. Yeah. Uh, and we've done a, a number of projects for healthcare, uh, healthcare environments. And what's really fascinating is to hear the way that they talk about anything in the room, anything in the environment, uh, especially when you get people in infectious disease, you know, they want to come in and talk about <laughs> anything that has uh, anything that's fabric. They call them dust catchers. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you have to basically hermetically seal everything, you know, and I think that there's, I, there's absolutely validity to that in a healthcare experience, but at the same time, you know, we're humans. And so we like things that aren't always the same. Like humans don't respond to homogeneity. Like people, people like things that are um, new and, but within, within reason, right? So people like things that are familiar, but yeah. a little bit different. So you can't go so far out there that no one recognizes what it is anymore. If you go so far, it can be uncomfortable. But if you can have a certain percentage, like majority familiarity, and then a slight innovation, that's actually a really fun experience because you know what you're doing, you know kind of how to interact with that, and then you find something that's, that challenges your perceptions. So, you know, back to what that looks like in the physical space, you know, you've got some spaces that are soft, some that might have hard edges. If you've ever been in a building or a room where the walls don't have 90 degree angles, that completely changes the feeling, right? You yeah. understand walls, you understand building, but when the walls aren't, you know, shaped like a square structure, you all of a sudden feel like you're in a brand new place and it, it is memorable, it's like seals in your memory, what it feels like to be there. Well, and you, your example was really good because you can have like, you know, sort of an antiseptic barrier versus an antiseptic experience. And there's a big difference that you could have a, like somebody loves to look at, it could be as simple as, you know, a, 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 like a, a, like a, a bust statue with a, a beautiful fabric headdress that has in a, a culture story in front of it. It would make people really stop and read and think and, and versus, you know, I need to make it steel square and it needs to be, you know, germ proof. Like they can be surrounded by a germ proof box, but right. you actually see it. And, you know, and quite often it's even as well, the, the dichotomy of, steel versus silk, you know, mm -hmm. and those things where we, we bring opposing visual, you know, experiences together, then they kind of play off each other really nice. Like you said, change the, the, the frame of the room and it completely foundationally changes the way you experience it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have usually kind of a, a base, a base experience, a base visual experience, and then you have some focal points within that. So, you know, you might have one sculptural installation that ends up becoming a focal point because it's so different from everything else in the room. So similar to how you might experience any sort of environment, whether it be virtual or in real life, you know, you're looking for those things that are the focal points compositionally, 
and then what's running in the background and having a, an ability to kind of jump from focal point to focal point. Well, and I'll, I'll, we're going to get into the fun part here for, for the, the startup listeners uh, amongst us, which there are many. How do you take this amazing passion and uh, a very unique sort of experiential uh, you know, skill and, and, and focus and build a business around it? How did, how did Nine Dot Arts come to be? Well, uh, our origin story, we really uh, began as art students. So my partner, Molly Casey, and I, we come from a formal arts background. She's trained in sculpture. I was trained in photography. We both have our BFAs. We started working, we initially worked in galleries, then we worked for an art consulting firm that really was the best in the region. And we learned so much from the women who founded that company. When they sold that business, it was sold going into the recession. They had some difficulty with management, organizational structure, long story short, there ended up being a bankruptcy of that company, Nine Dot Arts was like the phoenix rising from the ashes of everything that happened in that last recession. And so we started in 2009, which was kind of the, the bottom of it all, and then built this business to bring in efficiency, digitization, and open up portals where all of the artists in the world who wanted to connect with us, all of the clients in the world who wanted to connect with us, we just started breaking down barriers and putting tools into place where everyone could find us. And that really helped us build it to the next level. Um, Molly and I are both Gen Xers, so we're kind of the youngest of the Gen X group or the eldest millennials, however yeah, you want to categorize Somewhere it. in that crossover barrier. <laughs> Somewhere in that world, but I feel like our entire life has been about transition. Our entire life has been about taking this world that was once, you know, a, a paper fax machine type environment, slide carousel environment, and turning it into a place where you could remove all those bottlenecks of, you know, one-to-one -one communication and one-to-one -one conversion, and then start just communicating with with the the masses, the thousands. That's the beauty of that's the beauty of the internet, right? That's the beauty of technology. And we've really used that to support our growth as a company and build our professional services in art consulting and curating as a brand. Uh, it's such a specialized niche that if you know, if you know what you can do that is going to uh, bring the most value to the world and where you can really be the best at that thing in the world, you can figure out how to make a business out of it. Um, yeah, go well, ahead. I, you, you bring up a very, I'll say it's almost a, a bit of a controversial point. And, and I don't believe that it really is, but some people really get wrapped around the axle on this, that one of the most dangerous things to do is to try and turn passion into a business. But what you just described is not actually doing that. Like I really like, you know, making house of, you know, houses out of cards. That's, that could be a passion of mine, not a good business, <laughs> but being able to take something you're passionate about that has a viable audience paying, you know, commercial audience. So how do you, how did you know that what you were passionate about had 
viability as a business in, because it, it's a tough, like we call it, you know, product market fit, whatever it's going to be, but you're in a very, it's seemingly unique relative to like the, the, the software folks and, and the, the, the tech folks and where there's like tangible, I know if I get this many users, I get this much output, I get this much revenue. The, the consultative experience is interesting that I think that that may be what can kind of carry you through it. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of funny you mentioned that the concept of passion becoming a business. You know, I love to bake, uh, but we didn't open a bakery. So <laughs> I think you really have to start by looking at first, what can you be the best in the world at? And then how are you going to make money doing it, right? How are you going to generate income? Because we can build all the things we want all day long, but if no one is willing to engage with it, to participate in it, and then ultimately turn it, turn it into a way that is, uh, or a method that is profitable, then what have you got? I mean, I know a lot of people build software tech uh, and, and kind of put a lot of cost and expense into it going in. And we have done the same. We've built software and technology as well, but we built it with our professional services uh, profitability. So we're always looking at ways that we can minimize our risk. And when we were uh, starting out, we checked out, you know, a, a whole boatload of nonfiction business books at the library, downloaded CD-ROM business plans, mm -hmm. built out our P&Ls and our pro formas, and figured out what it was going to take for us to achieve results. And those results were going to come from how we knew we could uh, bring in income, how we knew we could earn revenue. And starting out, if you're a bootstrap company, then a lot of times you have to start out by figuring out how to convince your clients to sign on for your services and provide a deposit so that you can provide the services, right? If you're a bootstrap, if you're starting out, then you know, the way you start is you, you start a professional services company, right? Because it's low capital. So we started that way, we built up our niche, we built our consultation services, and then with the profitability of that business, we were able to open up into some broader experiences, build out our tech platforms to help us find artists all over the world. In 2014, we started building our first version of our app, .folioart.com, and that's where artists can sign on to share their portfolios with us. Because again, historically, back in the day, we had one artist coming to us at a time, you know, thousands of emails coming in from artists. We'd get 20 artists actually walking through the door. And that was a very inefficient model. So we wanted to create an online platform, a portal where artists could share their information with us, share their portfolios, and it then made us more efficient um, and more attractive for our clients in the consulting business because we had access now to almost 10,000 artists. And so that really started to change the game for us when we could break down those bottlenecks and break down those barriers. And again, we came from an a mindset of knowing what our clients wanted and how to deliver the experience that we wanted. And then we just built tools to do that better, faster, stronger. I will never forget at one point, uh, a couple of, 
and gosh, a few months ago in the before times when we yeah, were still meeting exactly. in person, uh, we went to, we were part of a group called the Blackstone Entrepreneurs Network. And you go in and pitch your company and get advice from a number of different entrepreneurs. And I'll never forget going in and telling the group of, uh, you know, veteran entrepreneurs what we had done. And then I said, well, you know, I'm not a tech CEO. We just, we built this art company and then we have this tech to support it. And someone in the room raises their hand and they said, uh, no, Martha, as the head of Nine.Arts, you are a tech CEO. <laughs> yeah. And the first thing that went through my mind was, bleep. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. Uh -oh. <laughs> okay. What did we do? But the whole time we were just building to support what we already knew we could do well and, and what we already knew was going to earn revenue. So uh, it was really a, a method of building tech to support a proven concept. Now, this is where we pause folks and we tell them that you just got the lesson in life because what you've done right there is first you, you probably, you definitely undersold yourself. And even in, in everything you do, if only people only caught the first you know, half hour of our discussion, they would not realize that if we took that off, you are exactly like they described. You are a tech CEO. You used technology to solve a problem that you personally, with your partner, felt. And you, by doing that, effectively created a viable you know, business process that allowed you to do something that could now scale. And again, in the same way that we talked about the, the visuals playing on the fundamentals of behavioral psychology, what you've just done almost, I won't say accidentally, because it's truly not accidental. It was, it was very purposeful, but wasn't your focus necessarily. Your goal wasn't to build technology. What you did by doing that is the foundation of the greatest startup stories ever in that solve a problem that you've got, find other people that have this problem, share that problem, that solution with them. Yes. Our goal was to build an art consulting and curating company. And to do that really well, we needed some serious tech. <laughs> it's uh, I've often said, I, we had this thing that we, uh, uh, that I did with a group of folks and actually be, my wife uh, became a part of it. Um, she was not at the time, which is kind of funny. That's, uh, that's uh, kind of a lot of, we spent a lot of time. To oh, that sounds like a good story. Yeah. It was this thing called virtual design master. So I'm like a, a tech nerd. And, and I had this idea. I was watching like ink master and kitchen master and all these things. And I love this idea that you could take people and put them in these kind of like bizarro situations. It's really crunch time. And sort of this, those are very like, you know, highly produced, but to get you to the like the wow moments of putting people in sort of test situations and seeing how they, they come out of it and helping them to discover like more about themselves and where their limits are. And that was really the goal. So I had this idea, what if I did that with technology where I gave them some like crazy design that they needed to do and I gave them like five hours to do it or two days or whatever. And so I love this. What we did was we created this this program and pitched this idea to you know vendors that we knew we said, hey, we've got this crazy idea. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go out and do outreach, and everybody was like, oh, okay. Well, tell you what, we'd love to sponsor it. 
so show us what your numbers are like, and then we'll be back like the second time you do it based on your viewership. And I'm like, oh man, this, this sucks. Cause I'm not going to be able to like, there's no numbers. Cause I'm literally, we just created this idea and I'm, I'm kind of crazy. So I'm going to keep going with it. <laughs> and so what we ended up doing was we built this thing that ultimately was a competition you know, and that was the sort of fundamentals of it. And we got people and they, we basically did what we do. We, you, know, you, you put them through the test, you have judges, you, we whittled them down and it became a really fun experience. And at the end of it, we did it for six years. Every year we did a, an, an, a, like a series and it would be like eight episodes. We did it online and we got more and more people were putting money into it and prizes. But in the end I came out of it. And so why I brought up the story was, I wanted to create a competition, but what I ended up creating was a community mm. because all of the people that were, that met through completely sort of happenstance randomness, we've it led to many of them finding new jobs, advancing their current jobs. They now work together. Two of them went out to launch a startup together. So we've got all the stuff that like it was, I'll say it like business adjacent to this fun little thing that we did. And it became this, the secondary effect. So my initial fun goal of like, like you is like, I want to do this thing. I've got this idea, but I need to build this, this thing that will get me to that end point. And in doing so that actually became the thing. Yeah. That's a great story. And I think what's cool about it, you know, yours worked and you were able to learn from it and, and develop from that. And I think that there's, there's also parts too, where you realize along the way, wow, we've invested a lot of time in building certain pieces because we were, we absolutely knew this is what we needed the tech to do. And then we, you know, would dump a bunch of money into building out portions of the app and then realize, wow, that we actually just totally overbuilt that we need to just take it back a few steps, you know? And so I think there's, there's this balance between feeling totally jazzed and going all in and, you know, knowing that you're going to have to take some leaps to build something to test your concept and make sure it's going to work. And then also being ready to let go of the parts that don't. Because that can sometimes be the hardest thing, especially, you know, if you are a founder and especially if you've got your own sweat equity or your own capital invested into this thing, it can be really hard to walk away. Uh, But that's a really important piece that we've had to learn over and over again, is that sometimes you got to walk away from certain parts of it to do the rest better. Yeah, the old uh, saying of throwing good money after bad. And it's hard to recognize that there's a great TED talk. And I, I should, you think I'd memorize it the, the number of times I reference it. Uh, this is why I, I write things down and I have Google. Uh, but uh, I forget, I forget the, the presenter and she has a, a book on it. And it's the idea of like the, the, the art of being wrong, like an on being wrong, I think was the name of the book. Because we as humans really struggle. And her example is such a perfect thing. It's the wily e. Coyote chasing the roadrunner until he goes right off the cliff and then stops and looks back, looks down and then drops. And that's, that's generally how we make decisions. Like when people talk about a pivot as a startup, 
it's always taught as this heroic, like, oh yeah, you know, Twitter used to be Odeo and it was a company that was going down and people were like, there was no future in it. So they pivoted and they became Twitter as if it was like a, they went home on a weekend and said, you know, I've got this great idea and it's amazing. And we've got Aaron Sorkin to direct the story and we're going to get Trent Reznor to do the soundtrack. <laughs> what it was is two years of burning people out to their the edge of their society, oh, their, like, yeah. anxiety. And, and that's an and interesting vanity. founder story too, right? Because there was just, you know, a lot of burnt bridges along the way. And yeah, you know, it's, that's one it's of my always... favorite books actually is that I think it's called Hatching Twitter or whatever. It's, mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's a, a must read for people. You're like, wow, <laughs> so much for the like the little pivot story. Pivots are terrifying and the, most people don't survive them. This is not easy. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. So yeah, I think it's, it's funny because all these founder stories, you hear them in hindsight. You know, you hear these stories of, oh, I had this moment and the company came to me in a dream and then I built it and now I'm a billionaire. But you know, it, it takes just a lot of experimentation it takes a lot of hard work and you know it's it's a it's a long road i think you know the the classic examples are you know with, even with places a lot of the uh, shared economy apps are you know 10 year overnight success stories yes right, right? Uh, our com we're just past our 10 year mark at nine dot arts. So we've got a solid proven concept, but it took us a long time to get here. And there were a lot of failures along the way, a lot of experiments and failures and changes along the way. So having a great partner in your life, having a supportive group of people around you and having experts at the table who are going to challenge your assumptions and bring a level of experience that maybe you don't have is really important. You need people around you who are going to be supportive, but also challenge what you do and ask a bunch of questions to make sure that you're going down the right path. What's the, what's the most sort of hurtful advice you got that you took because you knew it was right? Mm. Um, <laughs> Well, when we uh, built one of our initial, our second phase of Dotfolio uh, 2.0, we had built all of these tools inside it to manage these complex projects that we have. So not only was it an artist portal, we were doing project management, CRM, client management, tracking our industries, revenue, expenses, you know, and we had, we had poured, you know, six figures and more into building this second version. And then we had a couple of uh, people say, after they'd seen it, some, some outside experts, they said, oh, well, you know, you just built something that you could license for like 20 bucks a month. And, and actually that software is going to stay up to date, you know, cause now you're going to have to this big beast that you have to update and continually keep, keep evergreen. You know, your code needs to just constantly keep up with changes. And that was a, a gut wrenching moment. Yeah. 
but what we did is we took the parts out of it. Like we actually had built some really good parts to it. We just built a ton of extra that we didn't need. Uh, we built a ton of chaff, right? So we took out the wheat and we said, okay, we're going to double down in making that work really well and just let go of the rest. And that is still to this day, the hardest thing, like all of, all of the hours, all of the time to like build out those tools. But now at least we know what we want to measure, right? And we can put those data points into other softwares and we just API into what we need. It's a lot more efficient. It's a lot less expensive. It's a much better way to build an app. Yeah, there's a, and, and those are tough moments. So how did, how did that feel knowing that you were, you were torn because you're doing both like operational decisions and also like the, you're creating the vision of the business and trying to execute that. Mm -hmm. How's it, uh, how do you, how do you reconcile those two very challenging things where you could be wrong on both and, and right on one or the other and all of the, there's a lot in play. Well, I think you just have to put your ego aside. I mean, the person that brought that to the table, I was like, well, damn, you are totally right. <laughs> oh my gosh. So you just kind of like go home, you know, have a beer, sleep it off. And the next day you're like, all right, well, we know what we need to do. I mean, that's the, that's the benefit of having a small team. You know, you can really step back. Um, and again, like those, those stories, those changes, they, they don't happen overnight, but you have this moment where you just, you kind of have to get over it let it go, focus on what it's going to be. And in fact, the feeling of that is quite liberating when you realize there's a better way to do it and you can let go of some of these other parts. Once you do that, it's actually quite freeing to have the focus. So one thing that I love about where we are economically right now is that in a recession, at least for us, we find that you get an incredible amount of focus on what you need to do and how you're going to do it. A good recession reads out a lot of people who are just, you know, kind of posing or, or in it because they, you know, they want the, the title or the look of being an entrepreneur. But true entrepreneurs know how to navigate a recession. It brings an amazing amount of clarity. And if you handle a recession well, you come out of it ahead because you're ready for the upside and you're going to be there uh, and ready to roar faster than most other people. So, you know, our industry does have impact from, from the capital economy, not the real economy, but the capital economy. And so for us, uh, you know, we're taking the time that we have right now in a little bit of a slowdown to actually build in some more foundational infrastructure into our tech systems and our software systems and into our hiring so that we have all of the platforms and the base foundation that we need to experience everything that the upside is going to have to offer. Now, the other thing, being a bootstrapped company, you've probably had to make decisions along the way about whether that was the right path. And I'm sure that you've had people that saw where you were going and said they wanted to be a part of it. And by that meaning, I believe in you, Martha. I really see your vision with you. 
In other words, I want to see an oversized return on in money that I put in your bank account for you. <laughs> it's really what venture capital and like the foundation, you know, mm-hmm. how, how did you deal with that? Probably most likely more than once the, you have to have decision points along the growth of the business of, do we, do we go outside or even more so when someone outside who would smart would say, I, I actually would love to help you grow. Well, if that person's out there, uh, maybe Eric can give you my phone number. We'd love to have a conversation with you. (laughs) We can make that Um, happen. (laughs) But I will say so far, you know, we've been propositioned about seven times for uh, capital interest. And, you know, some of those were pretty serious. But the, the farther we got into the conversation, the more we realized it just wasn't the right partner for a variety of reasons. Uh, but maybe, we, you know, we had different interests at play. Uh, you know, we actually at one point uh, looked at, I said, well, maybe maybe I could play a different role in the company and we'll bring in an outside CEO. We interviewed a couple people and uh, one of our candidates, the first thing that they wanted to do was uh, cut the margins that we were paying artists. And I said, well, we're not going to have those conversations. <laughs> that made that so, really easy, right? <laughs> yeah, this is really easy. We can re- weed that out. Um, but, you know, I think over the years, it's just taught me that you've got to stick to your principles and only you are going to, you're going to be the best one. You as the founder are going to be the best one to define the principles and the values that uphold the future of the organization. So until you find that perfect partner that's going to align with your principles, align with your values and see the vision in terms of what you're bringing to the community, um, you know, keep pushing keep pushing on your own and hold out for the right person. Uh, So for us, you know, we figured out a way to build it on our own and now we have options. So we can get, uh, you know, we can build it on our own profitability. We can just reinvest. We are continually reinvesting the profits of the company back in to grow the business. So you can reinvest if your profitability and if you're not profitable, you need to figure out how to get there. So reinvest your profits into the business. You can get uh, financing from a bank. We've invested in real estate. And then you could also look at venture capital. But we're at the point now where we have all these options of how to grow and finance uh, the company's trajectory and finance our growth, which is a really strong position to be in. And it took us a long time to get to that point. But now that we're at this point, it's like we get to choose. And that's an amazing point to be at. And and one day soon we'll see the book and it'll be uh, it'll be called you know hatching nine dot arts <laughs> and, and it'll be this fantastic story of all there these hopefully a lot less drama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what well, I think it was the the, the fellow Dick Wolf who's actually the the creator of Law and Order and he beautifully describes that when you see these tech books and business books he says like a beautiful drama an amazing drama is when you take all the boring in between parts out and just basically leave the action. And that really unfortunately is the story that we get told. It's the, the continuous lie that we're told through business books, which effectively are about 60% the same text with a little bit of variation. Some of the character names and stories are a little bit different, but what I find often is that people read, they're like, aha, you know, I, I read a book you know, and therefore, you know, like I know how Twitter got started. I can, I've got an idea. I'm going to start the next Twitter. Then you realize why uh, very, very few companies actually make it through to longevity 
because that's the lie we're told and God help us if we believe it. And, and you just told us no lies, right? This is hard work. It's a duration. It's a combination of things. If someone listens to the beginning and said, you know, great art background, love the idea. You sound like the provider of a, a fantastic service, which is kind of what it was. Fast forward 30 minutes and you just met an amazing startup CEO. There's no lie in that. It's a 10 year journey. And you know, how, how far in did you kind of be very self-aware that you were a tech CEO? Like I know there's that moment, that, that'll be the moment they're like, I remember I went to this presentation and someone stood in the audience is like, ah, you know, but you probably didn't even accept it right then. I'm still working on it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that, look, one, one thing that we went through just recently is we upgraded our accounting and finance software. We transitioned everything over from our, our previous system to a brand new system. It's on the cloud. It's a data. It's really, it's real nice. And going through that transition was quite a process. Um, but during that transition, I'll never forget the moment when we had to download all of our information and input it all back in. And that was the first time for whatever reason, the first time in the company's history that I'd seen our cumulative work in one place. And when we did that download, this was um, about a year ago, and realized that we had contributed $30 million. We, we purchased $30 million worth of artwork in the past wow. 10 years. We bought $30 million. We, we contributed $30 million to the creative community in the past 10 years. And if you had told me that a decade ago, uh, I would not have believed it. <laughs> and so when we saw that, you know, when that number came out, you just, it's one of those moments where you're just like, wow, we're, we're really onto something. We're really doing it. I mean, this is very real. This is real money. This is a real impact. And then you realize that, you know, when, when we're starting out, we were a $600,000 business and now, you know, we're contributing upwards of five, six, seven million a year in artwork. And then you realize that the MoMA doesn't even spend 5 million a year on acquisition. Wow. And then you can say, we buy more art than the MoMA. <laughs> that's a pretty, uh, that, that would be a great tagline right on the website. Almost like that's a, that's a pretty heroic. I'm just going to like own that statement for a second. So for <laughs> me, it's really about the numbers. When your numbers get to that point and you can say that you're bringing this uh, pretty real impact and whatever your measurements are, ours were always financial. So when we're bringing that, those real financial impacts to artists, that to me is, success. So I, we're just going to keep doing it because at this point we've proven that the concept works. We're not even close to being able to support um, all of the artists out there in the world because the clients that we work with are hugely supportive, but even with 5 million in revenue, 6 million, 7 million, we're only purchasing from, you know, four to 500 artists every year. And then if you imagine 10,000 in the database, like we have more work to do on the sales side and that market is still very big. So on our sale consulting and curating service side, 
we've got a lot of room to grow and that's what we plan to do over the next five years. Well, and I'm going to, one before, one thing before we finish up and I, whether you even realize that you say it or not, you describe your, your customer is your art community. You, even though you have a you have an end customer, everything that you describe leads to what you feed back into that community of artists. And how, how important was that when you started? And like, how have you seen that? Because it's interesting the way you describe it, right? It, because mm -hmm. that is, if without that community, there's, you have, you have no product, but mm -hmm. your product is your customer. You're literally, you, yep. everything is feeding back, feeding back. Feeding back. Most people don't have that. Well, okay. So, so I'll tell you a quick story just about me uh, and, and maybe it will inform a little bit of this. So when I was uh, starting out in the art world in the art industry, one of the first jobs I had was working at a gallery and I got hired um, I still am thankful to this day for Bobby Walker at Walker Fine Art for giving me a chance. She hired me. I was paid 10 bucks an hour and I was basically the grunt. I had a, a number of different jobs at the time to offset this um, income. And, but I worked at the gallery. I was, you know, mopping floors, hanging shows, um, living doing the dream. event <laughs> management, living the dream. I was just there. I was there. I was so happy just to be there. Right. Yeah. And I'll never uh, forget this moment. So we had an event. We used to host events at the gallery because that was a way that we could earn income. It was a very profitable income stream to host events because there was really little overhead. So we would host events. On a Friday night, we held an event for Haley Barber, who was running for the governor of Mississippi. And we had a whole uh, packed house there to support Haley Barber that night. And there was a couple there from... Uh, Galveston, Texas, and they were really uh, lovely people and just had uh, some questions and wanted to know more about the artwork. So I started telling them about these sculptures by Phoebe Knapp. They were made with this historic walnut wood that was harvested from the Spanish trail, the El Camino Royale in Northern California. Phoebe had access to this cache of wood based on one of her connections in the Forest Service. And it was this gorgeous, ancient walnut. And she created this work that was a tablet with these beautiful bronze golden rings. And the work stood about 12 feet high. And then she also had a piece called Gateway, also made with wood. And Phoebe's background and her history is that she lived on a ranch. So the scale of her work was ranch scale. She, she <laughs> lived on a ranch in Montana. She actually brought the sculptures in on a horse trailer, right? So like big sky, big ranch, big art. And I was describing the artwork to the people who were there for the event. And they just loved this story about Phoebe. And then after they heard that story, they said, great, well, we will take both of those. And I said, well, that is just fantastic. Allow yeah. me to get your number and your email address and I will send you an invoice tomorrow. Now, back up and think about what was running through my mind. I didn't even know how to use the credit card machine. I didn't even know how to make an invoice. And so then cleaned up, closed the gallery down for the night and I called my boss in the morning 
And I said, Bobby, so um, this couple was there last night and uh, they want to buy this artwork. So can you teach me how to make an invoice? Cause I need to send that to them today. And she said, what? <laughs> and I told her about <laughs> the sculptures and what they were going to buy. And turns out up to that point, that was the largest sale that the gallery had ever had. And so, you know, I think about that story and I think, you know, never sold a piece of art in my life or just tell, help make that connection between the people who are looking for something unique and special and we know where to find it. So being able to make those connections between people and figuring out how to, you know, bring a story and bring value to the world, that became this inspiration point where I stood back in my mid twenties and realized maybe this is where I bring the most, right? Maybe this is where I bring the most to the world because what, what we're able to do is take all of those buyers out in the world who want to have a unique experience. We know the artists and we're just there connecting the dots. That's what we're doing. We're there to transform these client spaces. And by doing so, we're creating career opportunities for artists. We're creating jobs in the art world. And that became this realization that what our clients need and what artists need can actually align. And we can be the group that matches those two worlds. It's a... Uh... It's a story that deserves to be told, written, and retold. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you've you've earned your space, and you've you're creating wonderful things. And for that, you know, thank you, and thank you for sharing this today, Martha. This has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, you know, for everybody that's listening, you're welcome. Just saved you a whole <laughs> lot of trips to the bookstore. <laughs> just, Thanks, Sarah. Just got a heavy duty lesson in business, and. Oh, that was uh, fun. And I think that's the, this is something that it's a rare treat when we can really see the story come back together. And, and it is that, you know, it's a, too bad that Guy Kawasaki already used the title, the art of the start. Cause you'd, it would be a fantastic <laughs> thing for you to write truly the, you know, the, the art of business and uh, you're, you're doing, you're doing amazing things. And, and I said, your, your success is well-deserved and earned. Oh, thanks, Eric. Maybe we'll just do it on a podcast then. That, that's it. That's it. We'll keep going. <laughs> so with that, uh, sadly, we're, uh, we're wrapping. But before we go, I always wanted to make sure that how can people reach you and how do they find out more about Nine Dot Arts? What's the best way that, that they can get connected if you want to uh, share your story and they can learn more about you and, and hopefully learn some solid business lessons while they're at it? Absolutely. So to learn more about Nine Dot Arts, visit us at ninedotarts.com. That's N-I-N-E-D-O-T-A-R-T-S.com. So find us online. You can learn a lot about our work. There's a fun little quiz you can take and you can uh, just really see how the art experience comes to life. So check us out at nine.arts.com. And then in terms of reaching me, I love connecting with people on LinkedIn. So find me there. I'm Martha. Weidman. My last name is spelled W-E-I-D-M-A-N-N. -N. I'm on LinkedIn. Send me in mail. I would love to connect with you, learn more about your business and help you grow your company. Fantastic. I'll make sure links are in the show notes. And, uh, and of course, for folks, like I said, definitely do show some, some love to, uh, to, to the power of, of visual creation. You know, uh, do reach out to Martha, get connected. And uh, speaking of 
of supporting local businesses. Please do hit the subscribe button and do all those neat things that you're supposed to do when you, you know, uh, it is really good to get feedback. Uh, I hope that everybody loved this conversation as much as I did. Uh, I know I'm certainly smarter and better for having come out of this uh, time. I only wish we had more time. Well, thanks, Eric. It was great to be here today. And don't forget to subscribe to the Disco Posse podcast. Uh, that's it. I know. You, you're, you're my best customer ever. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Eric. Take care.